following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw, for our teaching resources, visit www.shaw.org.nz. This is the close of a four-week study of Jonah chapter 1. And you're saying, hold on here, Adam. That's false advertising because this is supposed to be a study of Jonah. I know. Get over it. <laughs> I couldn't help it. As soon as I started with Jonah, and I realized that I couldn't do four sermons for four chapters. I just went where the Lord led me, I believe, and what I was interested in. And I just got stuck in chapter one, which of course leaves possibilities for other occasions perhaps, but I just got stuck in this one chapter and some of it was predictable. I thought, yes, I would have to do a sermon on Jonah and the fish. I thought I'd have to do a sermon on a runaway prophet and the consequences of that, which was last week. But I came across things I'd never really thought I'd find in Jonah. This whole issue of Jonah's you know, kind of rebelling against God being quite reasonable when you thought about the violence of the Assyrians, or the actual fact that God loved Jonah despite his rebellion, and in fact he was a pig's ear being turned into a silk purse. I never really had thought about that till I started to pray about it, think about it, meditate on it, read about the book of Jonah. And today is another one of those pig's ear moments in which I discovered something I had not known before, and I was just so blessed in my own spirit by this. I hope it has the same effect for you. Today we will close out the series of four sermons with an exploration of a remarkable series of parallels between the call of Jonah to that of the New Testament apostle Simon Peter. And I've entitled today's message, Peter... Jonah's saintly doppelganger. Now for those people who are German here, you already know what doppelganger means. It simply means a look-alike. It's a word that was developed in folklore and in fiction to suggest that out there on this planet, there is another person that looks exactly like you. It's a great kind of story narrative device. If you could imagine somebody who looks exactly like you being somewhere else on the planet. You see, there could be two Adams, like me. There could be two people on this planet that look, another person that looks exactly like me. That's a possibility. I think it's unlikely because this planet could not handle that kind of awesomeness. <laughs> but hey, you just never know. Peter is Jonah's saintly doppelganger. He's his lookalike because his ministry is so similar to that of the Old Testament prophet. You will have a handout, hopefully, which has a map on it. It has texts on one side, and on the other side are two maps. The first map is from the period of Jonah. And I want you to write 750 BC next to this map. The layout of the geography and political arrangement of this period is 750 BC, it's the time of Jonah. The other map is AD 40. I want you to write AD 40. It's the time of Peter that we're going to look at. The time distance between these two men is nearly 800 years or eight centuries. But what I want you and I to see is that though they're separated by 800 years, that spiritually they're so close together, we would have difficulty getting a piece of dental floss between them. 
And we need to do this first by kicking off and looking at two texts. They're on the other side of your piece of paper, and I'm going to read them in their entirety. Jonah first, from 750 BC. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah arose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa. And of course we know he gets swallowed by a great fish after being thrown into the sea. He then ends up being vomited up onto dry land. He goes to Nineveh. He preaches to them. And this is the result, the very next verse. In Jonah 3.10, Then the Lord saw their works that they, the Ninevites, had turned from their evil ways, and God relented from the disaster he had said he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. Now we're going to move eight centuries into the future to the time of the book of Acts, the 11th chapter, the first verse, where Peter is called into question by senior Christian and Jewish leaders to give an account of his activities involving Gentiles. Now the apostles and brethren who were in Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. And when Peter came up to Jerusalem, those of the circumcision, the Jews, contended with him saying, you went up to the uncircumcised men and ate with them. But Peter explained it to them in order from the beginning, saying, I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance, and I saw a vision, an object, descending like a great sheet down from heaven by the four corners, and it came to me. When I observed it intently and considered, I saw creeping four-footed animals of the earth and wild beasts, creeping things and birds of the air. And I heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, Not so, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has at any time entered my mouth. But the voice answered me again from heaven, What God has cleansed you must not call common. Now this was done three times. And all were drawn up again and stood before into heaven. And at that very moment, three men stood before the house where I was, having been sent from Caesarea. Then the Spirit told me to go with them, doubting nothing. Moreover, six brethren accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. And he told us how he had seen an angel standing in his house, who said to him, send men to Joppa and call for Simon, whose surname is Peter who will tell you words by which you and your household will be saved. And as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them as upon us at the beginning. Then I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John indeed baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If therefore God gave them the same spirit as he gave us, when we believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I, that I could withstand God, when they heard these things, they became silent, and they glorified God, saying, Then God has also granted to the Gentiles repentance to life. We're going to look at the parallel lives of these two men, and I'm going to show you five ways in which their ministries reflect on each other. The first of these is that they were both given the very same command almost word for word, to arise and go. 
This instruction you can see earlier in the book of Acts was in actual fact this very same phrase that was given to Jonah. And this is important, ladies and gentlemen, because all great, all minor exploits that you and I wish to endeavor for the kingdom of God, or even in the secular realm, will require you arising out of a comfort zone, or a position of apathy, or inertia, and get moving. Do you realize that the second law of thermodynamics is working against you every day of your life? Your body is winding down. It is with me, ladies and gentlemen. Just look at my head of hair. Every day there is one less. When God said he's counted and knows the numbers of hair on your head, my response to that is, so what? So do I. <laughs> the numbers have become so low. Number 45 has just left the building. All callings worth something require us to go from inertia to action, idleness to productivity, to laying aside things, to take good things sometimes, to take up better or greater things. Think about Elijah and Elisha. Elisha would never have been the prophet that he was if Elijah had not told him to lay down his job and follow him. Jesus, when he comes across the disciples, what's taking place, ladies and gentlemen? They are in productive economic jobs as fishermen. And he says, leave the boat behind for which you have invested a good deal of money. Lay the nets down on that beach and follow me and I will make you fishers of men. What was he saying? Get up and arise. Do you know Vital Sassoon has a really interesting life. He's the man who gave the name to all those hair products. He had a very difficult childhood. For seven years after his father had died, I believe, um, he spent seven years in an orphanage. His mother was so poor, she could not look after him and his brother. He, he was involved in the fighting for the establishment of the State of Israel in 1948. But his real claim to fame, ladies and gentlemen, was as a hairdresser. He established and became perhaps the most famous British hairdresser in history. He set up a whole lot of salons, and in 1982, Sassoon Hair Products earned in one year $110 million. $110 million in 1982. And he said this about his success. He said the only place in which success comes before work is in the dictionary. The only place in which success comes before work is in the dictionary. For you and I to have success in God, to fulfill what he has called you to do, will require a rising and a going. The second feature of these two men is that they were both Galileans and looked down upon. We know this about Jonah from 2 Kings, the 14th chapter, where we read that Jeroboam restored the border of Israel from Lebo Hamath as far as the Sea of Arab, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke by his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet who was from Gath Hefer. You can see this on your map. Not only was he from this region, but I want you to know, if you went to Germany today, if you travel from the south to the north, there is a strong regional difference in Germany. The southerns are Catholics, the northerns are marginally Protestant. And the people in the north, in a way, kind of look down on the people from Bavaria as being country bumpkins. 
there's this kind of regional aspect to Germany where the people of Berlin believe that they are cosmopolitan, peoples of the world. But the people from Munich or München are these kind of slightly more backward um, country bumpkins. Now, we know this is not true because that's where we get our BMWs from. In fact, a whole lot of German industry is actually centered in the south, not in the north, that makes Germany so wealthy. But there's this kind of attitude. It occurs also in Italy. If you think about Milan and Florence and those great northern cities of Italy, and then you've got the more sleepy aspects of that southern boot of that peninsula with Naples, etc., it's this kind of regional difference. In the time of Jonah, the exact same thing existed, and the people of the north were looked down upon by the more cosmopolitan people of the south. You see, the northern Israelites were looked down upon because they had broken away. It was because of this northern kingdom separating that we've got a divided kingdom. You remember the United Kingdom had existed, not the United Kingdom, Britain. The United Kingdom of Saul, David, and Solomon was broken up, and this northern state of Israel was created, and Judea in the south. They were also looked upon as being not so close to God. Why? Because they did not have direct access to the city of David, nor to the temple of Solomon. So there was this regional difference that was going on. It's hardly surprising that Peter, 800 years later, was in the same situation. It had not changed. These kind of regional parochialisms existed for centuries, as they do in many countries. Peter, as you'll see on the map, was a Galilean who came from a place called Bethsaida. And you can see it on your own map, and we may have one up here soon. It was only about five miles away from the birthplace and the hometown of Jonah, though they were separated by 800 years. Did anyone notice that our man um, Peter was a Galilean? You bet. When Jeremy was talking about, talking about communion here and how Peter denied the Lord, one of the things they said about him when he said, oh, I have nothing to do with this person, Jesus, is they said, um, but you're a Galilean. Your speech shows it. The language and the voice and the accent of someone like Peter was harsh to the ears of somebody in the south. Galileans were seen as insufficiently concerned with details of Jewish law observance. They were seen as troublemakers, rebels who disliked paying their taxes. The southerners were so negative, so negative towards Galileans that they even made untrue statements about them. Do you know when Nicodemus in John's Gospel, the seventh chapter, decides that he's going to defend Jesus and this new movement? The religious leaders of Sanhedrin asked this very question. They said to him, Are you also from Galilee? Search and look, for no prophet has arisen out of Galilee. Now this, as we already know, having studied the book of Jonah, is a completely untrue statement. But it suggests to me that they were so blinded by their hatred of Jesus that they were prepared to look past this very obvious historical fact. And in point of fact, there had been two other prophets prophesying in the northern kingdom of Israel, and they were Elijah and Elisha. So this was a completely untrue statement that they were making at this time. 
Both men, therefore, were Galileans, and they were looked down upon because of the region they came from. The next point is simply this, that both of them were reluctant, uh, both of them were told to go to the Gentiles. They were both told to go to the Gentiles. Jonah was told to go to the great city of Nineveh, Peter to that great provincial uh, center called Caesarea. This was very unusual for Jonah. And the reason why this is, is because he is the only Old Testament prophet who was asked to go on a missionary journey of reconciliation to a pagan nation. You cannot find any other prophet in the Old Testament who is told to go on a ministry of reconciliation to another nation. It was unusual what God was asking Jonah to do. And when I say nation, I'm talking a socio-anthropological term. I'm not talking about the nation state that you and I see today, which has only been in existence for 400 years. When the Bible talks about nations, it's normally talking about a group of people with shared ethnicity, shared history, shared language, shared culture, shared religion. And what God had planned for the children of Israel is not that they would go out and evangelize like Christians are asked to do in the New Covenant, but that the, that the Gentiles or the pagans would see them worshiping God. And they would say, this is interesting. And they would come up to Jerusalem. They would go to Mount Zion and they would learn the things of God and then they would take it. You see, it was attractional. For those people, and then those same people would go out. We can see this in the prophet Micah talks about this. This idea of a light on a hill. Let's have a look at this text in Micah. Many nations shall come and say, come and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways, and we shall walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall, the law shall go forth, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. How would this work? All the Jews needed to do was to be faithful to God and Gentiles would be attracted to them. But God asked Jonah to break the mold. He's saying, I don't want them to come to you. I want you to go to them. It was out of character with what they had experienced previously. More than this though, both men were asked to go to the Gentiles, but I think it's without a doubt both were very reluctant to go. Neither of them wanted to go. And this in part is due to how the children of Israel, the Hebrews, viewed pagan Gentile nations and other peoples. I can't be too harsh here, folks, because I want to imagine if God called you to be a chosen people... And he said, you are the apple of my eye. And he showers on you blessings of prophets and a land of milk and honey. But he also is very strict and says, I want you to be separate from the peoples that surround you. I want you to look different to them. Do you know the Jews had very particular requirements for what they could cut in terms of their hair for their men? God was very clear about how they should look. Every part of their life was regulated, their clothing, their food. Let's look at Leviticus 11, the first chapter, and see the kind of restrictions on eating for these children of Israel. 
And the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying to them, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, These are the living things you may eat among all the animals that are on the earth. Whatever parts the hoof and is cloven-footed and chews the cud, among the animals you may eat. Nevertheless, among those that chew the cud or part the hoof, you shall not eat these, the pig, because it parts the hoof and is cloven-footed, but does not chew the cud. It is unclean to you. How different did these monotheists look to the surrounding polytheists? You worship one God? Did I hear you right? One God? And you can't eat all of these food items? You must cut your hair a certain way? Can you see how this may create a barrier between them and other peoples? This dominated of their view of themselves and their view of other peoples. They also were affected by temptation. Many Jews realized that in time, the longer they spent with pagan nations or married into with pagans, it drew their hearts away from God. And this created a carefulness, a desire not to be polluted, not to be drawn away from God. And how do you do that? You, you kind of isolate yourself. You make yourself more separate. In addition to this, there was sometimes a the struggle with other nations, even in warfare. This warfare and temptation over time hardened the Jewish-Hebrew attitude towards other nations or outsiders. This was very true for Jonah. This was at a time of huge nationalism when the northern kingdom of Israel was winning every single yacht race. It had expanded to an incredibly large size, it was very powerful, and here's what God's saying to Jonah, who has a good bout of nationalism in him. He said, why would I go to a people who are not one of us, to Gentiles who want to fight against us, who will tempt us and pull us away from you, and who are unclean pagans? Why would I go? It makes no sense at all. By the time of Peter, things had only got worse 800 years later. The Jews had become incredibly exclusivistic. In fact, to be called a Gentile in the New Testament period by a Jew was to be called a tax collector or an unclean animal like a dog. It was not a good thing to be called a Gentile. And we can see this with Peter's attitude and his response to when God calls him. Jesus was constantly fighting against this. This inside-looking parochialism that somehow we're superior to other people. I believe that's why in John's Gospel, he goes to a well and he speaks to a Samaritan woman. It was shocking, ladies and gentlemen, in the cultural climate and condition of that time for him to do that. But I believe he did it deliberately to break down those barriers and their attitudes towards the Samaritans who they said were virtually like mongrels. I'm serious about this. Half-breeds. Totally inferior. Worshipping incorrectly. Unclean. And so he goes and chats with one. And then, you know, the two great parables of Jesus... One is the prodigal son, and the other is what? The parable of the good Samaritan. I bet the disciples just about choked 
on their bread. As Jesus said, let me tell you a parable. And it's going to be, and it's going to be this great parable about a good person. And who's the hero of the plot? A despised Samaritan. Come on, Jesus, surely it would be one of us. He says, no, 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 you guys are missing something here. We've got thousands of years of acculturation has taken place, and I'm trying to break this down. Do you know the disciples came to Jesus, and they asked him, how should we pray? You've probably never thought of this. The reason they asked that question is because the Jews actually already had a prayer that they prayed three times a day. It had been in existence for 400 years. And this prayer begins with a, with a little phrase from Deuteronomy, Hear, O Israel, that the Lord your God is one. And then there are 18 components to this prayer. Jesus would have prayed it as a young man. The disciples would have prayed it every day at sunrise, 3 o'clock, and at sunset. So when they asked Jesus this question, how do you say we should pray? In the back of their mind was this prayer. Now, I am going to show you a portion of this prayer, and here's what I want you to note about it. It has a lot of them versus us. It has Zionistic elements and strong nationalistic overtones through the whole prayer. Let's have a look at a portion of this prayer. Blow the trumpet for our liberation. Gather our exiles. Restore our judges. Establish our innocence. May no hope be left for the slanderers. May all thine enemies be cut off. Grant mercy to the elders, scribes, the house of Israel, and righteous proselytes. Return to Jerusalem. Build her speedily. Can you see this prayer is all focused on what? One nation. And the disciples came to Jesus and they said, how would you teach us to pray? And Jesus, guess what he does, ladies and gentlemen? He takes those hands of his and he starts extracting things from this prayer that they prayed three times a day. And he says, I'm going to pull out the element of Jerusalem. I am going to pull out the element of Israel. I'm going to pull out the them versus us elements. And this is his prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive them that trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Look what's missing from that prayer. How they must have sat back and thought, what's going on here? What about us? <laughs> the key component in this prayer is God, Jesus, is saying, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And when he said the word earth, he said, my concern is not just about Jerusalem, it's not just about Israel. It is a global message of global concern for all nations, every kindred and tongue. The Lord's Prayer was revolutionary for the disciples, though they did not catch it immediately, as we will see. A complete change. And of course, Jesus, in the Great Commission, said that you should go to all nations, beginning in Jerusalem, preaching the gospel. But he doesn't want to go. I'm not surprised. I'm not surprised he did not want to go. 
Years of social conditioning, religious upbringing, was so strong that in spite of Jesus' teaching, it was seven years after Jesus had told them to go to all nations that this great event occurs where Peter sees the sheet come down with the animals in it, and they still had not gone to the Gentiles. There was a seven-year period where they had not obeyed the law, Lord. Why was that? I believe it's social conditioning. He was reluctant to go. And in the book of Acts, we see when the sheet was dropped, and Jonah's just, um, Peter's just resting and sleeping, the sheet gets dropped and he sees a vision, and he looks inside it with his Hebrew law-abiding eyes. And he is aghast. He is shocked because inside of it are clean animals, but oh my goodness, there are unclean animals mixed in together. And the most stomach-churning thing about this, ladies and gentlemen, is that God now asks me to eat them. <laughs> I don't know about you, but there is some social conditioning in me because of the way I've been raised in Aotearoa, New Zealand, that if I went to some countries and some parts of the world and they offered me some food, my social conditioning would immediately say, no way. No way am I going to imbibe that into my body. It's just not going to happen. Even more stronger for Peter. I will eat bacon, by the way, ladies and gentlemen. I'm just telling you that now. And McDonald's had this thing going on recently, a few months back, where they said you could add bacon to anything you like for two bucks. So I'm going through the drive-through, and this little thought came to me. I thought, really? I can get bacon with anything? And she said, sir, what would you like? I said, I'd like a soft-serve cone with bacon. <laughs> and she said, what? <laughs> I said, I want a soft-serve cone for an and bacon for an extra $2. Are you sure you really want that? I said, you bet I want that. I mean, ice cream and bacon together. <laughs> it's got to be the best thing on the planet. All right, ladies and gentlemen. Bacon and ice cream. Mmm. Even more shocking than the dietary requirements is that God was going to ask him to go into a Gentile house. Going into a Gentile house would make a Jew ritually unclean. But God's going to ask him to do this. It's unusual. My next and last point, and let's have a look at this young man, is that they were both beginning their missionary journeys in the same place. I don't know if you've noticed this in the text, somebody already had a few weeks back, but both men began their missionary journeys to the Gentiles in Joppa. This is not by chance. It's not by chance. You see, Joppa means beautiful. It means beautiful. A person who goes to other nations, whether it be on Massey University campus, Auckland University, or some foreign field, gets from God a divine pedicure. Their feet in the natural may be nasty and gnarly. I don't know what Jeremy's are like or Jules are like. But spiritually, their feet are beautiful or handsome in the case of the men. You see, in Romans 10, 14, how shall they preach unless they are sent, as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring glad tidings of good things. God promises to give a divine pedicure 
to people who are willing to take his gospel to other nations, to people that are different to themselves. What are the five things that we found in common with these men? Both were commanded to arise and go. Both were looked down upon Galileans. Both were called to go to the Gentiles. Both were reluctant to go. Both men began their journey in Joppa. Do you know one of the pivotal moments in Simon Peter's life with Jesus occurs in Matthew 16, or 17, in the Gospel of Matthew, where Jesus locks eyes with Peter and he asks him this question, Simon Peter. He asks him, who do men say that the Son of Man is? And Peter says, well, some say that you are John the Baptist. Some say you are Elijah. Some say you are Jeremiah. And some say you are one of the Old Testament prophets. And Jesus looks at Peter intently and he said, but who do you say that I am? This is a question God asks every one of us in our life, ladies and gentlemen. Who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then Jesus does something he does not do, ladies and gentlemen, at any other time that I'm aware of. He takes Simon Peter's name, and he takes that name and he associates it with Simon Peter's biological father. So after Simon Peter answers him, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. This is what Jesus says to him. Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah. Simon Bar-Jonah. Simon, son of Jonah. Peter's biological father's name was Jonah. I do not think this is by chance, ladies and gentlemen. I wonder if when Jesus looked into the eyes of Peter and he said, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, he did it with a wry spiritual smile, knowing by deliberately inserting Jonah here, it was a reference to the fact that he foresaw and knew that Peter would be called, just like his kinsmen of 800 years ago, to go to the Gentiles. He'd be asked to arise and go. He would be reluctant, but he would go. And because he went, you and I are here today as Gentiles. Amazing, isn't it? Simon bar Jonah. I want to finish with this question. Are you a son or daughter of Jonah? You say, Adam, I'm a son and daughter of God. I know you are. (laughs) But that's not the question today. I believe Jesus has actually called us to be a son and daughter of Jonah. Sandra, are you a daughter of Jonah? Mark, are you a son of Jonah? Jonah. What is that question? Are you going to go to the Gentiles? Are you going to speak to those people at work, at your school, at your university, 
in your community, in your city, in your country, and perhaps on a foreign field, about the good, the glad tidings of good things. Because inside of you, ladies and gentlemen, is the life-changing power of the gospel to transform people from a kingdom of darkness into a kingdom of light. And God is asking you to be a son and a daughter of Jonah and to go. If you're reluctant, you're in good company. (laughs) Jonah and Peter were reluctant. I have this thought that as the men turned up at the house and Peter's upstairs saying, I ain't going nowhere, that when these men turned up and he began his journey towards Caesarea, I wonder if he thought about his kinsmen of 800 years ago. And he reflected on the fact that Jonah had decided not to go to the Gentiles and got swallowed by a fish. (laughs) And he said, okay, I am going to go to Caesarea. This seems a lot more pleasant. And what was the result? Well, it was the beginning of the church worldwide. God loves every nation, even nations you and I think not highly of, based on our own upbringing, prejudices inherited from our parents and our family, our socioeconomic group and our own ethnicity. God is saying, Adam, you have got to get over that, for I have created all people in my image, and I desire for all of them to hear this gospel. Lord, we thank you that you are, in a sense, not a nationalistic God, but you are a God of all peoples. You wish to establish your kingdom to distant islands. Lord, you want all men and women to hear the sound of good tidings, of great things that men and women might be saved. I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would cause us to seriously consider the people that we have influence on, even what Jill has asked us to do today, Lord, that we would be an influence in a very simple way with the people round about us. You have called us to be a Jonah in this generation to Gentile people that do not know you. Let us, Lord, by your grace, arise and go. In Jesus' name, amen. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources, or to donate to our teaching resource ministry, or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.